Welcome back to this week's episode of The Emily Show. Today, we are talking about, yes, the Oscars, even though it's been like a week now, but so much happened. And I got a lot of questions about some of the legal stuff surrounding it. And so we're just going to do a recap, everything that's happened, what comes next, or what can come next. And then we're going to be talking about the recent ruling in the Glenn Maxwell case where her motion for new trial was denied. I was pleasantly surprised by that ruling because you know, if you've listened to my episodes on this, I'm like, I don't know how we get around this new trial. And it's very interesting to see the way the court reasoned through it. So we will be looking at the most relevant parts of that 40-page ruling that went down on Friday. April 1st. Lots happened on Friday. And I kept being like, well, this is not a joke, but it's April Fool's Day. What is even happening? So welcome to April. There's a lot to talk about. And we are going to just get into this episode because there is so much to talk about. Hey there. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm your host, Emily D. Baker, badass lawyer and everyone's favorite legal commentator, breaking down the legal shit in the news and pop culture stories you want to talk about. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I'm a big fan of the cursey words. So let's break it down. Ladies, have you started spring cleaning yet? I mean, I know that the new season of the home edit just dropped, and we want everything to be pretty and clean and organized and rainbowy. And sometimes that means we need to take care of the hair down there. Sometimes the lawn needs to be mowed. Sometimes we need to take care of not just ourselves, but also our men and their balls. You know why? Because April is Testicular Cancer Awareness Month. Manscaped has partnered with the Testicular Cancer Society to bring awareness to testicular cancer, men's health, and early cancer detection. Manscaped is committed to raising awareness for the most common form of cancer in men ages 15 to 35 and giving support for fighters, survivors, and families impacted by testicular cancer as a part of their We Shave Balls initiative. So you can not just have him smelling so fresh and so clean this spring, but you can show him that you appreciate him and you don't need him to go and smack someone in the face at the Oscars to prove that he has a nice set of balls. So if you want to try some of the products to help keep your man not just fresh, but also well-trimmed, Manscapes got you. Use my code Lawnard at manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping. That's right. Code Lawnard at manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping. And it's not just products for the hair down there. I love their nose trimmer. Look, they've got skin safe technology. It's, it's the greatest. It's one of my favorite products from them. So go give it a try. You've got the code, get your 20% off and let me know what you think. We should get back to all that is today's episode. Thank you, Manscaped, for sponsoring. Let's get into it. So some weeks we start with a quote, and this week is definitely one of them. Quote, me and Jada Pinkett Smith got all dressed up to choose chaos. Will Smith. And maybe Juror 50. I don't know. Possibly. (laughs) Possibly. That was on Will Smith's Instagram before he attended the Academy Awards from that day. It was an Instagram reel and a TikTok of, well, I'll show you in a few minutes as we get into it. But the reason I wanted to talk about this, one, everybody's still talking about it. And you might be like, girl, we know. But there's a lot that happened that can have legal implication that I want to talk about. Also, it's the Oscars. It's one of the bigger nights of pop culture. And this is one of the more stunning things I've seen personally happen at the Oscars. I think we were all a little shook And so we're going to talk about like the rundown of what happened because man, oh man, did you see what happened at the Oscars? Now for me, I was having tech issues since I've changed my setup for streaming and changed some of my tech, the tech issues have abounded getting things set up. I am very confident and maybe overconfident at this point that once that is sorted, that it will all just be fine. But there is nothing worse than ongoing tech 
struggles. It is so darn frustrating. So last week I was having a lot of camera issues and I was recording the podcast behind the scenes with the members in the Law Nerd community, both on Patreon and on YouTube. And I do that a couple times a month where the podcast is recorded with a studio live internet audience of the members. So they get the behind the scenes of how I record the episodes and they got the whole behind the scenes experience on how long it took to sort out issues. So I could even record by the time I finished recording, it was quite late and the Oscars were well, almost done, but because they were well, almost done. And because this incident happened towards the end of the show, when I came out, Dr. B and Travis were still watching and they were like, you are not going to believe what happened. I'm like, what? So they rewound the telecast for me. This is before I had gotten onto social media, before I had seen anything. And I'm like, no way. We rewound it a number of times just to be like, did that really happen? It was kind of like the Super Bowl with Janet Jackson's boob. It was like, did that really, wait, wait, wait. Did that really just happen? And then, you know, the audio cut was very strange, but you could clearly see what Will Smith was saying. And now we've all seen, I'm sure, the unedited uh, cut where you can hear what everybody's saying and you know that Chris Rock said shit. And that's why it cut on the delay so that the FCC, the FCC won't let me be or let me be me. So the FCC won't fine the Oscars. We'll see what the FCC does. Apparently they've been getting complaints of people who were so outraged by the violence on their television. I'm like, do you live in America? <laughs> do you watch the news? The, the, this look in the spectrum of violence that's on the television. I think the slapping at the Oscars is definitely on the milder end of the spectrum, but there were definitely people who, uh, you know, complain to the FCC because they are outraged that this happened on the Oscars. If you have not watched, let me give you a quick rundown. During the 94th Academy Awards on March 27th, 2022, Chris Rock got up to present Best Documentary and was doing kind of the audience stuff, was talking about those that were nominated for uh, Best Actor and made a joke about Javier, Javier Bardem. And then looked at Jada Pinkett Smith and said, Jada, I love you. GI Jane too. Can't wait to see it. And then the camera pans to Jada rolling her eyes and looking not pleased. And then to Will Smith laughing. And then it pans back to Chris Rock and he's like, Oh, that was a nice one. It's still my opinion that he's at that point responding to what he's seeing from Mr. And Mrs. Smith sitting there in the audience. And then he goes, uh Oh, and it seems like that's the point where Will Smith maybe got up and then the camera pans and shows Will Smith walking uh, to the stage, walking kind of down the little runway there up to where Chris Rock is standing and slaps him right in the face. And then Will Smith turns around, like straightens his vest and walks back to his seat and just sits down. Chris Rock says, um, Will Smith just slapped the shit out of me. And we only heard the beginning of that in the U.S. because it cut because of the language. And then it pans back to Will Smith and you can see him yelling in the unedited cut that has come from other countries that's available on Twitter and elsewhere. It You can clearly hear Will Smith screaming with his whole body, keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. And you can, you don't need to know how to lip read to see exactly what he's saying because he was, it was full bodied yelling experience. Uh, you can see Chris Rock going, dude, it was a GI Jane joke. And then trying to collect himself and saying, well, that was the best night in television. And then goes on to present Will Smith, of course, goes on to win best actor, makes a tearful speech, and then goes out and parties at the Vanity Fair after party. But before the Oscars, before everything went down, we are going to take a look at that Instagram real quick because it gives a little bit of context. And I'm not going to play the audio because one, I don't trust social media to not copyright claim me for playing the audio of something that is a TikTok and an Instagram when I share it on YouTube. But I'll tell you what the audio says. The audio says, God allowed me to live another day and I'm about to make it everyone's Problem. So for those of you on the podcast, you will just get to hear me talking about it. For those on the YouTubes, you will get to see this from Will Smith's official Instagram. And it is him and Jada dressed up for the Oscars um, with that audio. Her, of course, in the green dress. They've got a green background. They're making fierce faces. And the caption says, 
me and Jada Pinkett Smith got all dressed up to choose chaos. The comments under that, and there are now, uh, let's see, 607,000 comments and not over 9 million likes on that post. The comments are a fair split of what the hell just happened and and I feel you, man, and stuff like that, which is exactly what we saw on social media after this all went down. So before the Oscars, it was choosing chaos. At the Oscars, we've just talked about. After the Oscars, Will went on and partied at the Vanity Fair party, dancing to his own music with Oscar in hand. But then on Tuesday, March 29th, he did release a statement on Instagram saying, quote, Violence in all of its forms is poisonous and destructive. My behavior at last night's Academy Awards was unacceptable and inexcusable. Jokes at my expense are part of the job. But a joke about Jada's medical condition was too much for me to bear, and I reacted emotionally. I would like to publicly apologize to you, Chris. I was out of line, and I was wrong. I am embarrassed, and my actions were not indicative of the man I want to be. There is no place for violence in a world of love and kindness. I would also like to apologize to the Academy, the producers of the show, the attendees, and everyone watching around the world. I would like to apologize to the Williams family and my King Richard family. I deeply regret that my behavior has stained what has been an otherwise gorgeous journey for all of us. I am a work in progress. Sincerely, Will. Now, he references Jada's medical condition. She has alopecia. She has been talking about it openly. She has shared that it has been a struggle, but she's also shared that she loves her bald head and doesn't really give a fuck if anybody else likes it or not. So there's been, even from what she's put out, some um, mixed statements, I thought, about her um, or her hair loss. And it's it's something that maybe is a low blow, but I don't see where words uh, result in violence as something that's okay, which surprised me that so many did when I went to social media after this to see, unless of course those words are immediate threats of harm and violence, which require action. And that becomes a self-defense thing. That's not an assault or a battery. And we're going to talk about what this is in my opinion, uh, in a little bit, but Will was not the only one who made a statement right after the Oscars. Jada also put a statement up on her Instagram on the same day saying, this is a season for healing and I'm here for it. No caption, no quote, no nothing, just this is a season for healing and I'm here for it. And that's really been all that she said about this incident. Then on April 1st, We get breaking news that Will Smith is resigning his position with the Academy or his membership with the Academy. I think this is in response to the Academy's statement, and we will get to their statements in a moment. But he said in that statement, quote, I have directly responded to the Academy's disciplinary hearing notice, which we know came on the 30th of March, based on the Academy releasing a statement on that day. And he goes on to say, I will fully accept any and all consequences for my conduct. My actions at the 94th Academy Awards presentation were shocking, painful, and inexcusable. The list of those I have heard is long and includes Chris, his family, many of my dear friends and loved one, all those in attendance and global audiences at home. I betrayed the trust of the Academy. I deprived other nominees and winners of their opportunity to celebrate and be celebrated for their extraordinary work. I am heartbroken. I want to put the focus back on those who deserve attention for their achievements and allow the Academy to get back to the incredible work it does to support creativity and artistry in film. So I am resigning from membership in the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences and will accept any further consequences the board deems appropriate. Change takes time, and I am committed to doing the work to ensure that I never again allow violence to overtake reason, which... I'm, I know this statement was provided to people and Variety and other outlets by his team. Of course, he has a PR team, but I want to know what you think about this. Does it ring genuine to you? Does it ring as a, you're about to get fired, so you're just going to go ahead and quit so that you can exit gracefully? Do you think it's a statement to show the Academy that he's taking responsibility? Uh, do you think he is embarrassed and horrified, or does him out dancing and partying that night 
change that opinion for you. And there were some things that have given me pause in all of this on how I felt about it. And one of those things was the Academy's statement. Now, the night of the Academy Awards, the Academy put out a statement saying, quote, the Academy does not condone violence in any form. Tonight, we are delighted to celebrate our 94th Academy Awards winners who deserve this moment of recognition from their peers and movie lovers around the world. And I felt like they were trying to distance everyone from it. It's like, no, no, look over here. Look over here. That's not going to work, boo. The headlines in People and elsewhere were that the Academy asked Will Smith to leave the Oscars, but he refused. And in a statement released to multiple press outlets by the Academy, they said, quote, things unfolded in a way we could not have anticipated. While we would like to clarify that Mr. Smith was asked to leave the ceremony and refused, we also recognize we could have handled the situation differently. The statement then goes on to say, the Board of Governors today initiated disciplinary proceedings against Mr. Smith for violations of the Academy's standards of conduct, including inappropriate physical conduct, abusive or threatening behavior, and compromising the integrity of the Academy. They then say, consistent with the Academy's standards of conduct as well as California law, Mr. Smith has been provided at least 15 days notice of a vote regarding his violations and sanctions and the opportunity to be heard beforehand by means of a written response. And it sounds like from Will's statement that he did make a written response two days later, and that written response included him resigning his membership to the Academy. It then goes on to say at the next board meeting set to take place on April 18th, the Academy says they, quote, may take disciplinary action, which may include suspension, expulsion, and other sanctions permitted by the bylaws and standards of conduct. It then concludes by saying, quote, Mr. Smith's actions at the 94th Oscars were a deeply shocking traumatic event to witness in person and on television. Mr. Rock, we apologize to you for what you experienced on our stage and thank you for your resilience in that moment. We apologize to our nominees, guests, and viewers for what transpired during what would have been a celebratory event. Sorry, what should have been a celebratory event. So, With all of that, it sounds like Smith's response to the disciplinary proceedings that have been initiated was to resign his membership in the academy. The impact that has, and I uh, did a quick little reel where I had read a number of things that said it could impact his nomination status, uh, his ability to win, but that's only if there's disciplinary action taken by the academy. Resigning membership means he can't vote, but he can still be nominated and attend awards shows, et cetera. But not being able to be nominated is something the academy can do depending on what sanctions they deem is appropriate, including expulsion from the academy, which could include more drastic measures than just not being able to vote on future, um, future academy awards. Now, what's so interesting about this is that the next day, TMZ and other outlets reported, and TMZ's headline said, Will Smith, Academy lied about asking him to leave, dot, 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 sources. And it says, Will Smith was never asked to leave the Oscars after he slapped Chris Rock. In fact, the opposite is true. He was told by the producer of the show he could stay. This is according to sources with direct knowledge who were present, which is a very interesting thing because is then the Academy's statement publicly made that he was asked to leave and refused potentially a false statement of fact. And for all of you that watch my coverage, you know when we're talking false statement of fact that we're getting into the realm of is it or is it not defamatory? So we're going to evaluate that after we go through this timeline. But it's very interesting to see that the TMZ reporting states that the producer, the producer of the show said he could stay. And when we're talking about the producer of the show, we are talking about Will Packer, who went on Good Morning America also on Friday, April 1st, and gave a fairly short, it's like a six-minute segment, I think, that they shared. I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes and descriptions down below. In that interview, Will Packer says that LAPD was present and ready to arrest Will Smith if Chris Rock wanted that to happen or wanted to press charges. He stated that the joke about Jada was unscripted and that Chris Rock did have a number of jokes ready, but didn't even get to them because of what happened. He stated that he thought it was a bit that they were doing when Will Smith approached the stage and was caught 
you know, flabbergasted like everybody else when it seemed that Will Smith was actually angry when he started yelling from the audience. It seems like that's when the mood in the room changed because people weren't sure if this was a bit or not between the two. He said in that interview that he went up to Chris immediately after Chris came off stage after presenting Questlove with the Best Documentary Award and confirmed that he was struck but didn't want to pursue anything. I mean, at that point, shit's already out of the horse because he's already been hit on live television. He also said that he didn't have any conversations with Will. So the way that that got back to TMZ is kind of interesting because Packer said he talked to Will Smith the next day when Will Smith reached out to him to apologize, which I think is appropriate because his actions overshadowed the entire event. And I'm glad he reached out Though we also saw Wanda Sykes speaking on Ellen's show saying that she was not apologized to and that the hosts of the show also felt that this kind of overshadowed their work hosting the show. It also said that behind the scenes, Packer spoke to the Academy leadership that was on site and said that Chris Rock didn't want Will Smith to be removed. I wonder if that was Chris Rock didn't want him arrested and then it was morphed into he doesn't want him removed because there's two different things. Having security say, sir, you need to leave. You cannot... You. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here is different than having LAPD arrest Will Smith at the Oscars. Those are two very different things. And I think Will Smith could have been escorted out by security, asked to leave by the Academy or producers without being arrested by LAPD. I don't necessarily think that was necessary, especially in light of Chris Rock saying he didn't want Will Smith to be arrested and didn't want to press charges for what really amounts to a misdemeanor battery. And I understand that. So. Packer really confirms that they um, they were going to remove Smith, but he told the Academy leadership that that's not what Chris Rock wanted. So did the Academy then, if they wanted him to leave, did the Academy, though, ever ask him to leave? And it sounds like they didn't, which, again, brings up concern about their statement. Will Will Smith ever pursue that statement? Probably not. But it's an interesting thing when I hear the conflicting stories in the Academy, maybe trying to cover their ass a little bit saying, oh no, we asked him to leave and he refused. Does that make you think less of this situation? The smack is one thing, but then it's like to smack somebody on live TV and then to be asked to leave over it and refuse is on another level for me, because again, people make rash decisions in the moment. Maybe Maybe it's just my life or maybe it's my work as a prosecutor. When you see a lot of people make split second decisions that are really bad, you're like, people make bad decisions. But then when you are asked to leave and double down on it, it, it changes it for me. I'd love to know what you think about that either on social media or uh, down in the comments below on the YouTube, on the YouTubes. The other party that weighed in on this was SAG-AFTRA, the acting union, and they released a statement talking about the union and safe work environment, which with the amount I've been covering Rust, it's interesting. I'm interested to see what SAG-AFTRA is going to do there too. But what they said in their statement um, shortly after the Oscars was, quote, as the union representing presenters and other performers working on the Oscars SAG-AFTRA is focused on ensuring our members always work in a safe environment. Violence or physical abuse in the workplace is never appropriate and the union condemns any such conduct. The incident involving Will Smith and Chris Rock at last night's Academy Awards was unacceptable. We have been in contact with the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences and ABC about this incident and will work to ensure that this behavior is appropriately addressed. SAG-AFTRA does not comment on any pending member disciplinary processes. So SAG is now involved too. They're not going to comment on what they're doing, but I'm not, I won't be surprised if they are also talking with the Academy ahead of this April 18th vote on disciplinary actions for this. Again, I don't think those actions will result in his Oscar being taken away. I don't think that that's appropriate. We will see what they come up with, but Oscars have been given in worse circumstances. Roman Polanski. So I think if they do try to take his Oscar, that people will be furious um, because the, the tenor on social media was so split. And I haven't seen that much of a split in like my real life. <laughs> But in my social media life, you see a fairly big split on social media with people 
saying, you know, well, that's, that's what Chris Rock gets. The joke was a low blow and you get hit in the face. And then a lot of others saying, um, violence isn't the appropriate response to words. So no, it's not okay to just smack somebody in the face because you don't like what they said. It was very interesting watching Heather McDonald who runs the wonderful Juicy Scoop podcast, talk about her own experience as a comedian and as someone who's been slapped in the face on television. I'm going to link her episode down below too, but Heather was talking about working on the Chelsea Lately show and being part of a bit where she didn't know that the end of the bit was her getting hit in the face and she got slapped in the face and was stunned. And no one really said anything about it or checked on her or told her it was coming. And she was completely shocked by it. And even retelling this story years later, you can see the emotion there. And it's interesting for me to see the perspective of other comedians. That's not something that I do, but I have been on stages. I I don't generally talk about the audience much, but I've been on stages too, up there by yourself, doing presentations and talks in my TED Talk and others. And it's, I don't know what, how you would respond. Like the, the fight, flight, freeze. I I don't know how I would respond. Um, Probably not well. If somebody tried to approach the stage, I imagine that being a tremendously uncomfortable moment uh, with lights being in your face and not really understanding what the other person is doing or thinking, and it just being so out of context. So when I saw that Chris Rock was going to be performing shortly after the Oscars. I was, like everyone else, very interested in what he was going to say. And he spoke on March 30th. He was in Boston at his first show after the assault and opened the show with, what's up, Boston? How was your weekend? Now, this show sold out after this happened. He was met with a standing ovation, and he told the crowd then that he was still processing it, and he might talk about it at some time in the future. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for that statement. And it's sometimes easy for us to forget that not only people are people, but we need time to process things that are shocking, traumatic, um, that we have strong emotional connections to. Like when you have strong emotional connections in your brain or a strong emotional response, sometimes the logical processing just yeets itself right out the window until a later point in time. And I really respect that he said, I still need time to process And I feel like our world has gotten very fast with social media where people want to have an opinion real quick. And I have done this too. I am definitely not exempt here. And you want to, you're like, oh, I, this is happening. I want to talk about it. I want to see what other people are saying about it. I sometimes want to process it en masse with the group. And that's maybe not always the best approach to take. But it's interesting watching it happen in real time. And that's what we saw the night of the Oscars. I saw so many tweets of people saying, I want to get into Clubhouse, um, which is a social audio app. I want to be in Clubhouse talking about this. We want to process things as a group. And sometimes on social, it's not easy because what you say in your initial processing might not be what the conclusion that you come to down the road with processing. And In a world of social media, that initial response might not be a great one, but it will never go away when it's processed on social media. And it's something I have to remind myself of, even when I want to have a conversation about something that I need to take a pause to process. And it's something that I remind my kids about as they're going to enter a world of social media as well, that when you process in real time on a public forum that never goes away that can come back around on you. And so I respect Chris Rock for saying, no, we need time to process. And we do as humans need time to process. And I think, and I hope that we see people saying it more. Hey, I need time to process this more before I have an opinion, before I make a statement, before I respond. And I think there's a lot of pressure on celebrities and people of note and people with large followings or audiences to respond to things sort of immediately. And I hope that we start to see an understanding that people can't always respond immediately. They do need to process. And that's a genuine thing. That is a thoughtful and considered thing. And I think it's an appropriate thing that I hope we see more people saying, I just need a little bit more time to process this before before I make a public statement on it. 
I want to take a minute to remind you that it's the beginning of the month, and that means we have a members-only live stream coming up for all of you in the Law Nerd community. If you have not joined our Law Nerd community yet, now is a perfect time to do so. LawNerdsUnite.com will get you to our Law Nerd community on Patreon, and you can choose what level of membership you would like to not just support me and support the show, allow me to talk about topics that are not always the YouTube friendly, and to get behind the scenes and additional content and behind the scenes conversations with other law nerds on the topics that are happening. It's where I put up the members only I have thoughts podcast, breaking down the things I have thoughts about. Sometimes it's behind the scenes. Sometimes it's a deeper dive into the topics we're covering, not just the law, but also uh, my thoughts, my feelings, confusion, pondering, all the things. And we have monthly members only live streams, which is a great way not just to interact with the Law Nerd community, but to interact with me as well, because those live streams have just the members on them. And we really get to dive into topics. There are more DA story times there and a lot of fun. So if you've been considering it, come on over and join the Law Nerd community right now at lawnerdsunite.com. Memberships start at just $3 a month. I would love to have you. And don't forget to say that the podcast sent you. Let's get back to today's show. So let's talk about the legal implications here. First of all, we've got a conversation to have around defamation by the Academy. Here's the thing. If you're making a statement that Will Smith was asked to leave and didn't, and that's not true, is that a false statement of fact that can be reputationally damaging? Maybe. And in fact, we're already seeing Will Smith projects get put on the back burner from Netflix. That news just came out yesterday. So yesterday, yesterday from when you're listening doesn't help you. (laughs) April 2nd, yesterday for me. (laughs) So we're already seeing Netflix moving away from Will Smith. Now, whether it's because he was asked to leave or because of the slap is going to legally be very difficult to parse. But Could Will Smith bring an action for defamation? Is there a question there? Could there be people who said, look, man, I can, I can understand. I don't approve or, or endorse slapping someone in the face, but I can understand making a bad decision in the moment. I can understand that. But then when you have a minute to reflect and you're asked to leave and you just like throw up the middle finger deuces and refuse to do it, then I have like, that's another level of disrespect and not giving a fuck. And it's different. So could that be a situation? Maybe. For defamation, you need that actual malice because Will Smith is a public figure. But that just means that the statements published, you know, liable, the statements published with knowledge that it was false or reckless disregard to whether it was whether it was false or not. Wouldn't the Academy know if they asked him to leave or not? And wouldn't they know if he refused or not? Like, I think we've got a false statement of fact about the person knowledge or reckless disregard that it was false, but did it cause harm? And that's the question, but that's something that can be proven in times to come. I don't know, y'all. I think there's an argument there for it. I want to know what you say. When I post about this episode, please let me know on social media at the Emily D. Baker if you think that there's an argument to be made for the Academy defaming Will Smith. I, I mean, I think there is. And then what happened on stage? A lot of people are calling it assault. A lot of people are calling it a battery. I thought it might be helpful to just take a little law minute to review what those two things are and what they mean. Legally, assault and battery are different things. Practically, a lot of states either have assault statutes or battery statutes or sometimes both. Also, assault and battery can be a criminal cause of action. You know, the police are involved. You can go to jail, things like that. Or a civil tort. You, as an individual, sue another individual for a harm that you're saying that they've caused you, with generally money being the remedy, but other things can be remedies as well. So criminal or tortious conduct, and then an assault versus a battery. An assault is the threat or use of force on another that causes the person to have a reasonable apprehension of imminent harmful or offensive contact. So imminent contact not contact. The reasonable apprehension is the thing. The fear, really, 
that this is going to happen the moments before. And then a battery is the application of force to another resulting in harmful or offensive contact. So the application of force to another can be grabbing a purse and pulling on their arm, knocking something out of someone's hand, knocking a hat out their head, slapping them in the face, all the way up to all of the other types of, you know, harming someone. But an assault can be, and this is Emily, are you pulling this from a case that you had when you were a young DA? Yes. Yes, I am. I had a case where someone was trying to take back a car that had been repossessed off the repo lot. And so that would have been a theft of the vehicle. And the poor individual that was working, like the, the woeful soul that had to work at the repo lot that day was like, lady, please, I'm going to lose my job. You can't take the car. You have to pay for it. Like it's been repossessed. Like I am going to lose my job. Don't. She had still her set of keys. So it gotten into the car, turned it on. It was revving the engine. And this individual that works at the lot is standing in front of the car going, please don't take the car. I don't want to lose my job. Like this is my job. Pay for the car or pay for the back car note. And talk to my boss. But please just, you can't leave with this car. I will lose my job. And so the driver trying to take back the car started revving the engine and like jumping the car towards the person. not hitting the person with the car, but jumping it towards them. And the person was terrified that they were going to get run down with the car and ended up leaping out of the way. The car was taken off the lot and it was resolved later, but it was an assault with a vehicle because the individual was terrified that they were going to get hit by the car, but they weren't actually struck by the car because they got out of the way. So hopefully that's a, a helpful distinction between assault and battery. Or if you like hurl something at someone, a plate, a shoe, a knife, <laughs> a rock, and it doesn't hit them, but they're afraid it's going to hit them, then you have an assault, but not the resultant battery because you don't have the harmful or offensive touching. I interchange the two when I talk about them because our language, our, our common vernacular interchanges the two so often. But yes, technically a battery in California, a misdemeanor 242 battery, which is, again, punishable by like a $2,000 fine and six months in jail and not more. And it really is just the willful and unlawful use of force or violence upon the person of another. So the slap in the face absolutely counts as a misdemeanor battery in California. And with that recitation of law, hopefully you all are now like, well, Emily. I know the difference between an assault and battery, and I even have an example to use to explain it to others. I feel so wise. Good for you. Gold star. This is definitely first year crim law shit. The way I loved my crim law professor, my 1L. I adored my crim law professor, my 1L. It was absolutely my favorite class. Criminal law was one of my, it was always my favorite. I loved criminal law. I loved criminal procedure. I loved all of it. Loved it. Are you shocked? No one, no one is surprised. Speaking of criminals, it's time to talk about Glenn Maxwell. So the briefest of brief road so far on this, Glenn Maxwell was a known associate of Epstein, was tried and convicted of trafficking minor individual girls. I don't know why I said individual minor girls for the purposes of exploitation and Emily, are you pulling some of your words so that the YouTubes don't get rageful at you? Yes. Yes, I am. Eventually, I might just have to do an uncensored version for the audio only <laughs> and a censored version for the video. I'll consider it. But for now, we are going to try to make it as YouTube-friendly as possible. But with that, she was convicted shortly after her conviction one of the jurors in the case started talking to international media about their experience as a juror. During an interview with the BBC, that juror was talking about how they had shared with the other jurors their own experience um, as a victim of SA when they were a minor and that they were helping educate the other jurors about the way memory works after something like that, that, that perhaps they should give um, the victims the benefit of the doubt because they remember some details and not others. And it can be tricky when you've gone through something traumatic like that. And the interviewer asks, well, weren't you asked about that history 
on the juror intake form. And the jurors, like, they don't ask you that. They asked about like friends and family, but they didn't ask about me. And the interviewer confronted them and said, no, I'm pretty sure it's question number 48. And that you see the juror have that literal, oh shit moment where they're like, oh shit. And that actually plays into the judge's decision in denying the motion for new trial. So after that interview, the prosecution brought to the court's attention that a juror had been giving interviews and there seemed to be an issue. Uh, I speculated at the time that the prosecution knew what juror that was, looked at their juror form and went, oh, they didn't answer that question, honestly. And we didn't question this juror about that history during Wadier. Motions ensued. Glenn's team has asked for a new trial to be granted based on this juror's failure to disclose their past prior history so that they could have been asked about it during the voir dire process where you question jurors to make sure they don't have any um, implicit or explicit bias against the defendant because the defendant has a right to a fair and impartial jury. And that is what the judge was deciding after pulling juror 50 in for a hearing. And that motion has now been denied. And we're going to go through a bit of what the judge said about that and why. Uh, So as a practical matter, this means that Maxwell will go forward to be sentenced in June. We will see the sentencing memos come out and I will cover those when they do. We'll see how much the prosecution is asking for, but the judge made it very clear in this ruling or after this ruling that sentencing was going to proceed forward. Now, Maxwell's team may very well appeal this ruling, but remember, as you're listening to me break this down, the appellate court will not find new facts. They will only look at the reasoning and the law as the court saw it. So if they determine that the trial court judge in this case, uh, Judge Nathan, Judge Allison Nathan, but last name Nathan, determined or misinterpreted the case law holding, then they can change it or say, go back and do it again. But they can't say, no, we don't think this juror is credible on the record. The findings of fact stay with the trial court judge. The findings of law can be interpreted by the appellate court, whether the judge misinterpreted the law, misimplied the law, misapplied the facts to the law, what have you. And sometimes appellate courts use that as an opportunity to reframe how past cases have been interpreted. So it's not to say necessarily the trial court has done something wrong because the appellate court can say, hey, we know you applied this standard, but we actually now think the standard is this. And then everybody goes, oh, new things. Wonderful. So let's talk about what Judge Nathan said in a very detailed and thorough 40-page ruling denying the motion for new trial. It starts with, central to our system of justice is a defendant's right to have guilt adjudged by a lay jury of one's peers. And by lay jury, they mean legal muggles, by muggles, by everyday, by the everyday folk. Citizens give their time and attention to this critical role in the administration of justice, a role which is enshrined in our Constitution. Judicial officers are charged with the implementation of this constitutional right. In all cases, whether high profile or low, trial courts must ensure that only jurors who can fairly and impartially assess the evidence are seated on the jury. And once seated, the jury must be permitted to deliberate fully and frankly in an effort to reach a unanimous verdict. Trials entail significant investment of public and private resources. For all of those reasons, a verdict may be set aside only in the most extraordinary of circumstances. The court then goes on to summarize what has happened here and said, before the court is the defense motion for a new trial pursuant to federal rule of criminal procedure 33 on the basis that the juror provided inaccurate information during jury selection. Maxwell contends that the juror's presence on the jury violated her Sixth Amendment right to an impartial jury. Bearing these principles in mind, the court conducted an uncommon post-trial hearing. Although uncommon, the hearing was necessary because of incontrovertible evidence that Juror 50 failed to respond accurately during the jury selection process to a question on a written questionnaire about his history of SA. At the hearing, the court questioned the juror under oath and under penalty of perjury. The court inquired about whether his answers were false, his explanation for giving those answers, and how he would have responded to follow-up questions if accurate answers had been provided at the time of jury selection. This inquiry was limited by Federal Rule of Evidence 606, which prohibits a juror from testifying about the content of deliberations or his mental process in evaluating the evidence at trial. 
The rule embodies long accepted federal law and is an important safeguard of the integrity of the jury trial system. The hearing was further limited by Supreme Court and Second Circuit law that permits inquiry only if there is clear and incontrovertible evidence of potential misconduct by a juror. Why the court pointed this out so specifically is that there is a breadth of evidence that the juror used their own experience to persuade other jurors, but the court is not allowed to ask about what happened in the deliberation room. The court has to go back and pretend if this juror had answered this question honestly, what would the follow-up questions have been? And then what would the court have done with those follow-up answers? I imagine on appeal that Maxwell's team is going to be like, well, this juror knows now, like literally the shit's out of the horse. This juror knows that if the court finds that a new trial is needed, that this juror is individually responsible for Maxwell getting convicted and then that conviction getting overturned based on their own statements. That's a lot of pressure on an individual. So court, this is me arguing from Maxwell's team side. Um, of course, this juror is now motivated to downplay any bias they might've had different than how they might've answered at the time. Like we're so far down the road here and this trial has been high profile and this juror knows what the outcome's going to be if the court finds that this juror was biased because it's been in the media and social media. This person's not living under a rock, obviously. So I think we'll see arguments like that when this comes forward or asking, you know, hey, in this case where they've already made the statement in public, Rule 606 maybe doesn't apply because they're not, you know, the they've already stated this information in public and we can rely on what they said in public or at least inquire about the things they've already publicly made known. We'll see what they argue. But the court goes on to say that based on the hearing record, the question before the court are whether juror 50 failed to answer honestly on a material question during jury selection and whether if he had provided a correct response, the court would have struck him for cause because he was biased. And again, that's either explicit or implicit bias. Controlling law is clear that the question is not whether the defendant would have chosen to exercise one of her discretionary peremptory strikes against the juror had he accurately disclosed his prior essay. So it's only whether the court would have struck this person for cause due to actual implied or inferred bias under the McDonough case from the Supreme Court. They say that the limits on the nature of the post-trial inquiry serve the important interest in the finality of judgments. The court then goes on to conclude that the defendants have failed to satisfy the demanding requirements of the controlling Supreme Court decision. The court finds juror 50 testified credibly at the hearing. There are many reasons for that finding. He appeared to testify frankly and honestly, even when the answers he gave were the cause of personal embarrassment and regret. His incentive at the hearing was to testify truthfully or face criminal perjury charges. His tone, demeanor, and responsiveness gave no indication of false testimony. The court thus credits his testimony that he was distracted as he filled out the questionnaire and, quote, skimmed way too fast, end quote, leading him to misunderstand some of the questions assuming mistakenly that he would not be one of the 12 jurors selected from the hundreds of prospective jurors who had been summoned, he rushed through the questionnaire. This led to inaccurate answers. Juror 50's lack of attention and care in responding accurately to every question on the questionnaire is regrettable, but the court is confident that his failure to disclose was not deliberate. The court further finds that Juror 50 was not biased and would not have been stricken for cause even if he had answered each question on the questionnaire accurately. At the hearing, the court asked Juror 50 the same set of questions that it asked all prospective jurors who had indicated prior experience with SA on the questionnaire. These questions are typical of how trial court judges seek to assess potential bias and determine based on the juror's responses, whether the juror should be struck for cause. This is so because the key question is not simply whether an individual has had experiences similar to the issues that would be explored at trial, but whether the individual can serve fairly and impartially. And then the court goes on to talk about different types of trials where jurors have stayed on, even though they've had similar experience 
to what's being tried. The, you know, someone who's had a family member murdered, not being struck on a murder case, uh, victims of fraud serving on fraud cases, et cetera. The court says, thus, this court would not have struck juror 50 for cause if he had provided accurate responses to the questionnaire. The defendant's motion for new trial pursuant to Rule 33 is therefore denied. The court then goes on for, as I said, 40 pages and lays out not just their reasoning under the test from the McDonough case, but also their findings of fact about this juror's testimony and that testimony being credible, that this juror made an error, that that error is regrettable, but it was not willful or deliberate, and that even if they had answered question 48, the answers to the follow-up questions that they provided at the hearing would not have risen to the juror being struck for cause because the court would not have found any type of bias. Therefore, this was regrettable, but it doesn't overturn the conviction. And I will be interested to see what Maxwell's team argues. You know, they're going to argue it on appeal and what the appellate court does, but the court's findings of fact are pretty sound. Um, they, the court was at the hearing. I'm not going to say, well, you know, maybe this dude was a really good liar because the court found that they were credible and I'm not going to supplant my own judgment. I wasn't there. So I think we'll see arguments. We'll cover those arguments when we do see them. But for now, this conviction stands. I think that's probably a good thing. Whether this is legally the right result, we will see what the appellate court says. But for now, Glenn Maxwell should be sentenced for her convictions in June, and we will see how the prosecution proceeds on the other two outstanding charges for perjury. Because again, she still has two perjury charges that she has to go to trial on. So this case is far from over, but this podcast is not. This podcast is over. So it is time to say goodbye, 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 goodbye. I can't do Oingo Boingo tonight. My brain is so tired. <laughs> so with that, I'm going to stay hydrated and mind my business. Well, we're going to mind everybody else's legal business, aren't we? We're not really minding our own business up in here. We're minding everyone's legal P's and Q's. Grab a glass. Say it with me. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your gas not be $7 a gallon. May your family be well, and may the odds be ever in your favor. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a Lonard, and I cannot wait to see you in the next one.